to uh, see you, great to welcome you this morning. If uh, you're able to keep John Chester open for you this morning, I'll uh, hope be a help to you and I as we, uh, we get into this this morning. If you, um, if you go to uh, Edgebaston in Birmingham, uh, you can go and see a, a building called Five Ways Tower. Just out of interest, has anyone heard of Five Ways Tower? Anyone know this building? It's, it's essentially it's a great big high-rise tower uh, that actually stands empty. There's, there's, there's nothing in there. There's nobody in there. It's not a particularly old building, but a, a number of years ago it was condemned as having this. Uh, this was, I, I don't believe this was true. This thing called sick building syndrome. What's sick building syndrome? Well, it, apparently it's this thing that happens. I, I don't know if it's true or not, but this thing happens where not people working in there. Just like a disproportionate percentage of them begin to get ill. Yeah. They develop sort of respiratory problems and uh, headaches and, and also chronic illnesses. So it gets to the point where people decide, well, there must be something in this building. And so this building is condemned. Uh, it, it, it's just written off, it, it's, it's empty now, it's completely cleared out. Nobody's now in there, it's just been left. To rot until it falls down, until it knocks it down, builds something on top of it. This building is condemned. It can no longer be inhabited, it can no longer be used. And as we get to John chapter 2 this morning, as we look at this reading we heard, uh, in a similar way, what we're going to see happen here is Jesus is going to come to the temple at Jerusalem, and in effect, he's going to, he's going to condemn the place. He's going to say everything that's been happening here can no longer happen here. Uh, the, the Passover celebration we're doing here, it, it can't be here anymore. It needs to move. Okay. The, interest, the problem actually is not the building. 
It's not that the building is sick as such, it's the problem is the tenants. It's the inhabitants. It's the worshippers and what they are doing. And the way in which they're behaving is so bad that, that Jesus says, look, this, this can't be here anymore. The Passover celebration needs to relocate. And we're going to see, actually, Jesus give it a surprising new location for the celebration of Passover. Uh, as we look at this passage this morning. Uh, and if you've been with us over recent weeks, you'll know we're working through John's Gospel. Uh, we've worked through the first kind of chapter and, and into chapter two. We've seen John makes an extraordinary claim about Jesus as uh, the light of the world, as the one who brings life, as the one who's the word for the very revelation of God. Jesus, the one who kind of dwells in the tabernacles amongst his people. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And last week, Graham had to see. Uh, Jesus' first sign, where he turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Uh, worth noting in John's Gospel, there, there are seven signs, and there are seven I am statements that, that John uses to kind of weave through his Gospel to show us something of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So last week we saw the first sign. Interestingly as well, one of the things that Lawrence makes is the contrasts. So, so John puts these two stories together, the wedding at Cana, and the clearing of the temple, but notice the contrast. Last week, Jesus was really the, the party maker, he changed water to wine. This week, he clears the temple, he's the party Last week, Jesus was more, more withdrawn, unwilling to be kind of drawn forward and into what the request was. This week, he's very much to the fore, isn't he? Last week, Jesus was kind of creating something. This week, he really comes to destroy something. <laughs> Last week we saw that Jesus was filling tables. Today he's overturning them. And I think it's important for us to see that at the outset, to, to just realise this. Jesus does, statement obviously, Jesus does both of those things. And actually, Jesus perhaps needs to do both of those things in our lives. It's with Jesus, if he's going to fill our tables with choice wine, he also perhaps needs to turn over our tables and clear out some of the, the mess clutter that's there. He's got to clear them before he can fill them. Jesus needs to do both of these things in our lives as we as we seek to follow him and live for him. And so as we go through this, I want to use uh, that little uh, kind of image that, that Hazel helped us with, the image of moving house, to kind of give you three headings as we look at John uh, chapter 2, verse 13 to 25 this morning. And uh, the first thing that, uh, that we see happening here, what's the first thing you've got to do when you move house? Uh, Hazel helped us, didn't she? Is um, we've got to clear out the clutter. We've got to clear out the clutter. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, have a little look down at John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. And then uh, we read this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There are three Passovers happening in John's Gospel. And the last one is the one where ultimately he will, he will lose his life. This is the first one. He goes up to Jerusalem, verse 14, in the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And this obviously upsets Jesus, but it's worth noting what, what actually is it that, that really bothers Jesus here. It's not necessarily that there's some selling and money changing going on, that's not necessarily the problem. Remember, people would have travelled from kind of all over the, the known world to come to the Passover. It wasn't always practical for them to bring their cattle and their sheep and their doves 
the sacrifices. So they would come to Jerusalem, they, they would buy the sacrifice off and they were going to bring it, and then they would take it to the temple. In fact, Deuteronomy 14 sort of gives some provision for that. But the, the place God gives worship was too far, then you can travel, you can buy, you can make your offering. Similarly, with the money changing, uh, there was at the time something called the temple tax, which had to be paid in a certain currency, a particular Roman currency. So again, it's not that surprising to people coming from different regions, bring different currency, well, they've got to change it to pay the tax. And yeah, the money changers would take their own little bit off the top uh, to, to you know, make their, their living. So I don't think it's necessary that people are buying offerings and changing money. That seems part of what would probably had to have happened. Now, what is, what is the problem? What is the problem? Well, we're told the problem is not what's happening, it's where it's happening. So look down verse 14 again. Where is Jesus at this point? He's in the temple courts. He's in the temple courts where this is happening. And, and as he observes it, and as he, as he acts to drive them out, he says to them in verse 16, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered uh, this quote from Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, the thing that really bothers Jesus is not, not that the people have to buy their, their sacrifices, not that they have to exchange the money to pay the temple tax, it's that the temple courts themselves have basically become a marketplace. This place that was supposed to be there for sort of prayer, for reverent worship, for, for sacrifice, to worship, to, to remember who they were before the Almighty God and to, to bow down before Him, have just become like any other marketplace you and I may wander around. The commentator Don Carson writes this Instead of solemn dignity and a quiet murmur of prayer, there's the bellowing of cattle and the bleating of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy comments. Now, that is what irritates Jesus, and so we see him, we see his indignation. I know you feel about that, or you, but that, that troubles you. We see Jesus gets angry and hates things which are unrighteous and evil. And he, and he, sees, he sees the evil that's happening, and, and, he, and his heart is so stirred by it, he makes this whip out of cords, and he begins to drive out uh, the sheep, the cattle, and he comes and he overturns the temple. Of course, he goes, can, can, can you imagine what I would have looked like? Can you imagine how, how, how dramatic it would have felt? I've just got a little plastic table, it would be much bigger. But imagine Jesus comes in and, and you're there. Maybe with your family, with your mum and daddy, you come to the temple, the Passover festival, and you, you, you've got your money, and you've got, you've got the, uh, the offering to make, and, and you hear the treasure, and there's Jesus, and he, and he gets this thing, and he just... He just <laughs> People that are doing the trading are, they're obviously pretty unhappy about it, but everyone else stops and then they turn, they watch. What, what is Jesus doing? Who is this man? What has he come to say? And we see his anger is essentially because the place of worship, the place of worship has become just another marketplace in their lives. I think there's a challenge here for us, isn't there? There's a challenge here for us. Now, we might not be, um, you know, selling cattle and conducting business deals in the foyer over coffee afterwards. 
Uh, but that is a challenge, isn't it? As we come to the place of worship, it's not for us the temple, but it is we, we gather as God's people. Now the place of worship is a local church where we gather on the Lord's Day to, to worship. It's worth asking ourselves, is, what is our hearts towards that? Do we have that appropriate sense of worship and reverence, or, or do we easily slip into that sort of that market mindset where, where church just becomes just one among many customer experiences we have throughout the week? Maybe think about it this way. The worshipper says, I come to praise God, the Almighty God of heaven and earth. The consumer sort of comes to, to say, well, well, I come for what I get out of it. The worshiper says, I would engage my heart and ask God to help me engage my heart to respond worshiping to the songs I'm singing. The consumer says, I don't really like this song. The worshiper says, my Bible is open as it's read and as it's preached. I want God to speak to me. The consumer has their phone open, checking their emails and their WhatsApps. Their Instagram feeds. The worshipper says, Lord, would you speak to me this morning through this very ordinary preaching? The consumer says in the car on the way home, that's very ordinary preaching. The worshipper says, I'm here because I want to meet with God. The consumer says, it'd be nice to see my friends. The worshipper says, I'm here to serve God with whatever talent he's given me. The consumer says, I'm here because I'm on the road trip again this week. It's worth checking our hearts, isn't it? I, um, personally, I find this like, oh, it's very difficult. We have a review meeting on a Wednesday where we think back to one another on the things of God on a Sunday. I find it so easy to be here as a critic sometimes, and to sit and to be evaluating the elements, and I, I, have to, I really have to give myself a talking to. Say, so, God, would you, would you help me hit the reset button? But I'm here to worship. Help me engage my heart in, in the praise and to really focus in on the prayers and to really receive from the word and the preaching. Got to, got to clear out the clutter. Clear out the clutter of sort of marketplace, customer, consumer religion. And come to worship in this place of worship. That's the first heading this morning as Jesus comes and he's, he's got to clear it out, hasn't he? He's got to clear out what's going on. And then, secondly, We've got to find a new address, and we've got a moving house, we've got to clear out the clutter, we've got to, we've got to locate where the new place is. Uh, that is essentially what Jesus is doing, so he's going to be relocating the whole focus of the Passover festival, and uh, he's going to tell us where the place is. But let's have a look down at the reaction that, uh, that he gets. Verse 18, have a look there, then uh, the Jews responded to him, and they said, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Notice how they're, they're immediately on defensive. Rather than sort of uh, receiving the challenge, rather than hearing the rebuke, responding sort of repentance and confession, they say, right, Jesus, you better prove yourself to us now. So they ask him for this sign, don't they? They say, well, give us a sign. Uh, prove that you have the authority. And Jesus' challenge them is interesting, isn't it? It says, verse 19, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three Days. That's a crazy challenge, isn't it? Destroy this temple and raise again in three days. So he's offering them a sign, knowing probably full well they're never really going to take him up on it. 
never really going to let them, never really going to tear down the temple. Deceiving and rebuilding three days. And it is strange, isn't it? Verse 20, they say, look, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? Those of you who are in the sort of building industries, if you're a builder or a carpenter or an electrician or a plumber, say, can you, can you build a temple in three days? I don't think so. Even, even Challenge Annika could have done it in three days. If you're a project manager, three, three, three days? If you're, if you're a town council planner, it would, it would take you three years to get to planning. Three, three days? You can't destroy this building in three days. Notice, though, what Jesus is referring to. Notice now, if you've got little ones with you, pause and go, just look down at this, great, you can help me. Verse 21, what is the temple? Which temple is he speaking about? Have a look down there. You might want to shout it out for me. What is the temple? Which temple is he talking about? Anyone see it? It's body. It's his body, isn't it? He says, destroy this temple. And they say, you can't possibly rebuild the temple in three days. But verse 21, the temple he had spoken of was his body. You remember in chapter 1, he said he was going to tabernacle. The tabernacle is sort of the, the movable version of the temple. He said, I'm the temple, I'm the place where the fullness of God now dwells. And when you destroy this, which they will, he was going to raise again in three days, as he did. Verse 22 tells us, don't they, after he raised from the dead, his disciples recorded what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus has spoken. One of the things that Jesus does in the Gospels, and we're going to see this again as we go through this, is he, he speaks of sort of physical and material things, uh, really to signify deeper spiritual realities. So next week, for example, when he meets a man called uh, Nicodemus, he's going to say, uh, you need to be born again. But, but he doesn't mean physically born again, that's impossible. He means spiritually born again. He's going to meet a Samaritan woman in chapter 4 and say, listen, you're drawing physical water. I can give you a, a different kind of water. If you drink it, you will never thirst. It's a living water. And in chapter 6, when he feeds the 5,000, he's going to say, I can give you a sort of bread. And when you eat it, you will never hunger again. You see, Jesus uses these physical things to speak of spiritual realities. And what's he saying here on this one? He's saying, well, you, you come to the temple because you want to meet God. Because you should. That should be why you come to the temple. Because you want a relationship with God. You want to make forgiveness of sins. If you come to me, if you come to me, you can have a deep, intimate, personal relationship with God. And a full and complete final forgiveness of sins because of what I'm going to do on the cross. He's pointing to these deeper realities that he wants them to experience. I'm sure many of you saw this week uh, the sad news of uh, the death of uh, Matthew Perry, the actor from uh, who's in Friends. And uh, he led a, a difficult life in many ways. Uh, in his autobiography, he, uh, he says this once when he was young, he prayed this prayer. God, you can do whatever you want to me, just please make me famous. He later referred to it as a very dumb prayer. In his autobiography, he, he is candidly and brutally honest about his struggle with, with addiction to various substances. And he writes at one point, he recalls how it is at his lowest point, he prayed, he cried out to God in desperation, he said, God, please help me. 
show me that you are here. And then he writes, in that moment, it caused me to sob uncontrollably. I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was crying because for the first time in my life I felt okay. I felt safe, taken care of. He saved me that day and for all days, no matter what. He had turned me into a seeker, not only of sobriety, sobriety and truth, but also of him. He came to experience that thing Jesus talked about. If you come to Jesus, it's not that he'll sort out all your material problems, but often when he's talking about material things, he's pointing to spiritual things and saying, I can give you this intimate relationship. I can give you a brand new star, a new birth. I can give you living water. I can give you bread, which will cause you to never hunger again. This is, this is going to be the new place, the Passover. You celebrate the Passover, you sacrifice the lambs, you remember what everything you signifies, that the covering of God's blood over sin, all, all of that is now going to be, well, you will come to me now, and I will deal with all of that, fully, <coughs> finally and completely. That's why he's turning over the tables, isn't he? He's turning over the tables, he's not, he's, he's not sort of just, just getting irritated, he's not angry, he's not an act of petulance. It's an act, he's desperately trying to wake people up to the seriousness of what's going on. Their, their, their worship is all over the place. They're far from God, they're in danger of missing out the Messiah for whom they, they looked and hoped and anticipated. This, this, this is a wake-up call to them. Doesn't, doesn't God often do that in our lives? Doesn't God sometimes have to turn over our tables before we can fill them? Maybe, maybe you're kind of experiencing that right now. Maybe, maybe there's something in your life right now where you, you feel like God has just turned over the tables in your life. And maybe part of the reason that he does that is to get our attention again. To get our eyes back on him again. Perhaps we've spent too long sort of just doing it in our own strength. Perhaps our worship hasn't been all that kind of focused and fixed on him. Perhaps we've just been going through the motions. We haven't been as, as dependent on him as we should have been. We haven't truly humbled ourselves before him. We haven't looked him to, to fill our cup. And he kept going and he's turned over our table to say, you need to come back to me. I, I want to fill your table with choice things. But first there's some stuff we've got to clear out. So we've turned over our tables in order to fill them. And maybe we need to kind of talk to him about that and, and cry out to him in the midst of that. Here's our final heading this morning, is that pick up the keys. That's the last thing we're going to do. If we're moving house, we'll tear out the clutter. We know where the new address is. We now got to collect some keys, haven't we, to, to, to get in, to get into this thing, this, this life, this relationship. Well, what are the keys? Well, we've already seen in John's Gospel, and actually we're going to, we're going to keep seeing it in John's Gospel. In fact, it, the purpose which was written, we told at the end, John's direct these things that you may believe. Belief is the key. Faith is the key. We see in verse 22, uh, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recall what he said. Then they believed in Scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. And then we see in verse 23 and 24 as well. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and they believed in his name. They see he's in their belief. Belief, faith, simple trust in him. 
is the key. It's the, it's the way. But what Jesus says here, just, just force us just to, to take a little moment there and to sort of examine ourselves again. Because what you see is there's a difference here, isn't there, between crowds and disciples. The crowds follow Jesus, they're, they're interested, uh, they're, they're fascinated by what he's doing. But verse 24, we're told Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, but he was in each person. Jesus knew these, these crowds were to follow him. The crowds kind of love what he was doing. They, they love the miracles. They, they love the, the teaching. But the same crowds at the end are going to shout that Barabbas will be freed. And that Jesus will be crucified. Jesus knew the crowds were fickle. It's possible to have a fickle faith. You see the sports fans, don't you? Follow sports. You see, you know, it's, it's a pretty common thing in sports that, that this manager or this player is the... Sometimes people call them the Messiah, you know, they're the absolute hero, they're the, they're the one that's going to fix everything, and then six weeks later, they're the villain who needs to be sold or sacked or something. Well, the human heart is fickle. Jesus knows what's in our human heart. He's, he's challenging, saying, are you, are you a disciple? Are you part of the crowds? Are you here because this is kind of interesting, and fascinating, and, and, and it's fun to watch? It's interesting, there's something here. Or are you a disciple? That is fully trusting Jesus, that he's committed to his, his way of life, to everything he calls us to, even the difficult things that we're, we're following him, truly. Because we can't, can we? We can't deceive him. Verse 25 is, well, I want to say it's a challenging verse, but also it's, it's a wonderfully comforting verse, and we'll, we'll get there. But it's a challenging verse because, look, he says, he didn't need any testimony about mankind, but he knew what's in each person. The great prayed that, didn't he, in that prayer of confession. Almighty God, whom all hearts are open and all desires know, He knows everything about you, everything about you. You can't deceive Him. You can't fool all over His eyes. He, he knows exactly what is in your heart. And, remarkably, and here's the, the positive side of this verse, it makes His death even more remarkable, doesn't it? Step even more remarkable. Jesus doesn't come to die for the kind of nice, upstanding, have it all together, respectable people. Jesus comes to die knowing full well what's in your heart and mine. He knows the deepest bits of us, he knows exactly what's there, and he still comes to die. We're going to see next week, aren't we? As we get to chapter three, the most famous verse in the world God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. He gives of himself, knowing exactly what is within us. And, and, and I hope I'm not reading too much in here. Take this or leave, or leave it. But um, it's interesting when Jesus says he would not entrust himself to them, I think I'm using the crowds. Is it possible that the implication is that, that he does entrust himself to his disciples? He won't give himself and commit himself to crowds, but to his disciples. Is, is this saying actually he does? He really gives himself. He really commits himself. He really comes to us. He draws near to us. He walks with us. He knows all our fears. He knows all your failures. He knows our frailty. He knows our struggles. And he comes to us. 
Dios una vez. And it stays there all the way, all the way through this life. And then to the next. The words about that beautiful hymn, isn't it? Blessed assurance. Jesus is, I, the foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. You're an heir of salvation for the sign. You have that full trust in him. An heir of salvation. You're the purchase of God. You, you're what he bought with his blood. You have received the new birth. You're going to learn that next week. You have been washed. We aren't like, are we, those, um, those awful pictures we've seen on the news of people having to flee various war-torn countries. And they're refugees. They're, they're without hope. Jesus doesn't leave us that, does he? He has to clear out the temple. He has to relocate the Passover himself. But he doesn't leave us homeless. He provides and says, actually, I, the old has got to go. But here's the new home. Here's the, the new home in here. Here's, here's the new life. Here's the choice wine. Here's the living water. Here's the nourishing bread. Here's the new family. He is the place. And simple faith is the key. And the wonderful promise, again, we're going to get in a few weeks, in John 6, 37, Jesus promises this. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So maybe that's you. You need to come for the first time. Maybe you need a sort of moment of recommitment. Maybe you need to just come as we do week in, week out, for kind of the thousandth time to come back, to fix our eyes on him as, as the place where we have this relationship, this life-giving relationship with him. Clinging to the promise that whenever we come, he never turns us away. So I pray as we close and then I'll have back to Graham. loving Lord Jesus we thank you and praise you this morning that you came that you came to die on the cross to pay the price for our sin that you came to be that, that place where we come and find the intimate relationship with God himself where we come to find choice wine and living water and nourishing breaths. We praise you that you came to give us all that. We praise you that if we come to you in faith, you never drive us away. That if we come to you in faith, you, you commit yourself to us, you give yourself to us by your spirit to enable us to, to walk in whatever the next week has. We thank you and praise you. You never leave us nor forsake us. For your presence with us each and every moment from this day forward. Help us to fix our eyes on you. Glorious, beautiful, wonderful, and loving Savior. The glory of your name alone. Amen.